will join me in Luke chapter 16. Luke 16, this morning we will be looking at verses 1 through 15 as we continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke. The title of our sermon this morning is Shrewd Payment. And our key words for our worshipers in training are manager, master, and shrewd. Now, when I was a boy, something I really enjoyed was optical illusions. I would buy books with pictures of optical illusions, and I would spend hours just looking at them. I also like those, uh, many of you probably remember those magic eye photos. They were a bunch of pixels, and you had to stare at it for a while before the real image kind of popped out in a three-dimensional way. Well, in a lot of ways, I think that our parable that we are going to look at this morning is very much like an optical illusion. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem to be exactly like what we're reading. It doesn't seem like something that Jesus would even say. But the more we look at it, and the more we dig in, we're going to begin to see what's really going on. It's not quite what it seems on the surface, but it's all a matter of how we look at it. So this morning, I want us to look and see what is plainly the strangest parable in all of scriptures, in all of Jesus's ministry, and certainly the most difficult to understand. But hopefully, the Lord will help us to come out on the other side of it with a clearer focus on what's really going on. So let's begin right away in verse 1 of Luke chapter 16. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. Now, from all indications, it appears as though Jesus is still addressing the same crowd that he has in the last three parables that we looked at in Luke chapter 15. Remember, at the beginning of chapter 15, we saw that Jesus was talking to two groups of people. One group was the sinners and tax collectors. The other group that we saw were the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elitists. But we see here at the beginning of chapter 16 that while he's still surrounded by all of these people, he turns to address his disciples specifically. So Jesus begins this parable with a story, a story of a land manager who works for a land owner, or the scriptures here identify him as the master. And this manager is a dishonest man. Word had gotten back to the landowner, to the master, somehow that his manager was, in Jesus' words, wasting his possessions. Now the manager of the land would have been entrusted with the responsibility to carry out all of the business of the landowner's estate. And clearly, it seems that the estate was quite large. We will identify that in verse 6. So what landowners would do with all of their land, and this is still very common today, 
they would divide their land and they would rent out portions of that land to, to farmers that they could utilize for their own crops. The practice is referred to as sharecropping. A share of the farmer's crops uh, after he would harvest them would be returned to the landowner as a partial payment for the land he was using, usually along with a sum of money as well that would cover the remainder. So Jesus doesn't tell us how this manager was wasting his master's possessions, but whatever the case, it was clear that the manager was dishonest. And as a result, the master was losing money. He needed to find a new manager. And so what does he do? Well, he fires his manager. We see that in verse 2 when he tells him, turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. Now, the master was referring to a a log or a a register. All the work that had been done by the manager would have been recorded in some kind of log. He kept a record of who owed what to the master, and this account of his management would have been absolutely necessary for the master to know exactly what was going on with his business, with his land, who was using it, and what they were paying. Perhaps uh, some of you, though, can identify with this manager's situation. Maybe you've been told, turn in your records, clean out your desk, your services are no longer needed. You're being terminated from employment. And I assume if you've been in this situation, your immediate thought is, what do I do now? I need a job. I need to provide. I need to know what to do in order that I can continue to live. Well, we're going to see this is the very thing that the manager began to think. Now, something we have to see here is that there's going to be some time elapsing between the time the master told the manager that he was fired and the time when the account ledger was actually turned back over to the master. This period of time is crucial. It's during that time that the manager, now officially fired, yet still in possession of the ledger, is going to devise a plan to make sure that he is taken care of, even though he no longer has a job. In Jesus' parable, it does not take long for the manager to realize exactly what he needs to do. His instant thought, we see in verse 3, he won't do manual labor. He says he's too weak. He's certainly not going to beg. He has had an important job in the community, so begging was far below him. Uh, one One of the books of the Apocrypha says, It is better to die than to beg. It was certainly a part of their understanding. So in his mind, if if he's fired and he doesn't take action before word gets out that he's fired, his reputation will be marred. He will never be able to get another job because of his dishonesty. And so he needs to act very quickly. So let's see what he does. Look to verse 4. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. 
Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. Now, it should help us to understand what's going on here in light of the commercial practices, the business practices of that day. Jews were forbidden by law to charge interest to fellow Jews when money was lent out. The same went for collecting payment on any land. God's purpose in the law is clearly that the people did not take advantage of one another, but rather if they were loaning money or possessions to a fellow Jew, they were doing so out of the generosity of their hearts and out of a desire to serve the other person, not to get rich off of them. That was not the intention. So according to the law, something today like a car max title pawn shop, it wouldn't work too well in a Jewish society. However, these, these businessmen who were more concerned about financial gain than they were about helping their fellow Jews found a workaround to the law. Of course, the hearts of men are always going to seek a way to work around the law. And so it was common for land managers to determine the actual value for a parcel of land. Say, one bushel of wheat per every acre that you rent. So if someone was using 60 acres, in the end when he harvested it, he would have to give 60 bushels of of, uh, wheat to the landowner. However, the land manager would add an additional amount of interest. But in doing so, he would write out the bill, including as a total number and not identifying that this was interest. He just included it as the total payment. So in this example, the actual cost may only be 60 bushels of wheat. However, the land manager charges 40 additional bushels. So the bill was written for 100 for 60 acres of land. So with that in mind, the most common understanding of what the manager is doing here in our parable has to do with removing that additional amount of money that he added on to the bill. And in doing so, he's appeasing the farmer, he brought the cost down, and the master who owns the land. He called the farmers in one by one. Tell me what you owe. I owe 100 bushels. Well, knock that down in half. Knock it down to 50. Now, the farmers had no idea why the manager was doing this. But what would his assumption have been? Well, surely that it was authorized by the owner of the land. The manager is doing his work for him. In other words, without the master knowing it, his now fired manager was making him look good in the eyes of the community before they knew that the man who was doing all this no longer had a job. It's a quick decision. It made the farmers happy. They didn't have to pay as much. It made the landowner, the master, look good in the eyes of those who were renting from him. And of course, the manager would be applauded for his efforts in convincing the master to take it easy on his sharecroppers. Now, it's hard to say what he told each of the farmers as they came in to pay their debts, but what's clear is they all left happy. They all left with a much more elevated opinion of the master and his manager. 
And if you think about it, what he has done is ingenious. And even though the master is losing some money from the deal, in a very real sense, everybody wins in the end. The farmers are happy. The manager looks good. And the master, uh, the, 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 the manager is put in a position where if he is to be fired, if he is to be let go, it would look very, very bad. And so, what then, when the master finds out about all of this, does he say to his manager? Look at the first part of verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, up until this point in the parable, it's followed a fairly logical storyline, right? We have a man who owns land. We have his manager. He's dishonest. He gets fired. And he's still dishonest, so he goes and does something else dishonest in order to get ahead. That makes sense, right? Sinful man will do what he does in order to get ahead. However, this right here, This is where it starts to take a little bit of a turn, and it begins to get a little bit odd for us. What we're to understand is that the manager has now returned his books, his ledger, to the master, and the master looks at what the manager has done, and in a very bizarre twist of events, we get the sense that he sat for a minute, he looked it over, he shakes his head, and realizes the predicament that was created, and he says, wow. You were very shrewd. You pulled a big one over on me. Impressive. He commends him. Now notice it's the shrewdness that the master commends. Shrewdness. It's a quality that was, uh, it was a virtue of Jewish culture. Still very highly valued in many cultures today. A shrewd person is someone who is sharp-witted. They are, they are quick-thinking. They're very clever The master was outfoxed, but when he was outfoxed, he was made to look good in the process. So he would reason, well, I'm going to lose some money here, but what is a little lost money in the face of so much praise? Now, the master's response may seem odd to us, but when we recognize that shrewdness was a virtue, It's not so shocking. However, what Jesus says next will really cause us some confusion. Look at the second part of verse 8. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Here we have Jesus offering his commentary on the parable, why he told it in the first place. And right off the bat, the clear problem is that it seems as though not only is Jesus not condemning what are clearly dishonest actions by the manager, in fact, he seems to be commending him, to be upholding his pattern telling the disciples that they should emulate this. Now, for most people, these two verses are the stumbling point. So let's clear up 
the confusion because it's not what it may seem at first. We need to focus our eyes a little bit and understand the point of comparison that Jesus is making. Now, the foundation that Jesus is building upon is specific lessons regarding our attitudes toward wealth and possessions. He deals with this in the parable uh, that we're looking at now as well as the parable we'll see uh, in a few weeks with the rich man and Lazarus. Now, we need to recall that one of the primary emphases of Luke throughout the whole gospel account is the distinction between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Jesus makes that very distinction in verse 8 as he talks about the two people groups of the world. Those who are in the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of man and those who are in the kingdom of God. He identifies them as sons of the world or your translation may sons of the age and the others are identified as the sons of light. Now, everyone is in a kingdom and what does every kingdom have? A king. So Jesus is comparing the sons of light to the sons of the world on the basis of their service to their king. So here's the key and where hopefully it starts to make a little bit more sense. Depending on which king you serve, depending on which kingdom you live within, you have certain rules to live by. You have a certain rule of life that guides your decisions and guides your actions. So Jesus is saying, for this manager who is a member of the kingdom of this world, who is a son of this world, he has applied the rule of life that is fully expected of him in his kingdom in a way that is applauded even by the man who fired him for stealing from him in the first place. In other words, the manager utilized every tool that was at his disposal to bring about the most desirable end for himself. And in doing so, he worked within the rule of life that the world applauds and admires. Now here's the kicker. Jesus says that people in the kingdom of the world apply the principles of their rule of life within the world with much more wisdom and zeal than do the people of the kingdom of God. So let's work this out a bit. Think of this manager. He's a man of the world. He has a dishonest heart. It's clear. There's no denying this in the parable. He's unrepentant when he's found out. In fact, when it came to his moment of crisis, he continued to be dishonest and he cleverly used that dishonesty to win for himself more friends within the system of the world. His master, who's also a man of the world, has to commend the manager for acting so shrewdly according to his principles. So the manager smartly manipulated his own kind, the people within the same kingdom. The farmers were renting the land and the master who owned the land. And in the end, he will be rewarded by the world according to the world's system. He had what we often call today street smarts. He was putting his best foot forward within the system of the world to secure his future destiny within the world. 
So what's the comparison that Jesus makes? Remember, Jesus is speaking directly to his disciples. Even though all the others could hear him, he was relating directly to them. His point is very simple. You who are in the kingdom of God, children of light, oftentimes do not act like it. Instead of being shrewd, and this is an important distinction, instead of being shrewd according to the principles of the kingdom of God, you are missing it altogether. In other words, you're not being clever and wise and shrewd with your kingdom resources. They aren't being used wisely. They aren't being used well. In this key sense, the people of the world are better at playing the game within their system than are the people of the kingdom of God at playing it within their own. So you see, the point of comparison for Jesus has nothing to do with the ethical standard. He is not upholding the dishonesty of this man. This isn't Jesus highlighting anything of the moral issue. The point of comparison is the manager's proficiency at following the rules of the worldly kingdom and whether or not Christians are proficient and shrewd in following the pattern of the kingdom of God. In Matthew 10:16, we read the words of Jesus when he said, Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. This is an instruction to disciples within the kingdom of God. In other words, as Christians, we should have some spiritual street smarts about us. Now, that's all fine and good, but what about verse 9? What does that mean? Let's read it again. Verse 9. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, the idea of unrighteous wealth is Jesus' way of talking about money, about that which currently reigns within the world's system. We cannot escape it. Although being wealthy is not a sin, it's not anything bad in and of itself, it has so frequently been a source of corruption in the world, has become the biggest idol in competition with the one true and living God. So what is inescapably clear here is that our wealth and our possessions, those things we gain and possess while living in the kingdom of the world as citizens of the kingdom of God, we are to use them to win eternal friends. This is the proper use of what we have. We must give generously of our money for the furtherance of the gospel. This is Jesus' point. And if we're not doing so, we're not making proper use of what God has given us, and we are not enhancing our eternal friendships. The picture here is that we make eternal friends, and when we go to heaven, they will be there to welcome us. They will be our friends eternally. This is an intensely spiritual matter. We must also use our possessions to gain eternal friends. But we have to take it even further. It's not enough to give money. We must devote our personal belongings to making eternal friends as well. You see, the merely giving of money, it's important, but it can be sanitized and insulating. 
But we must also use our homes for others so that our personal space is loaned out. We must let others borrow our things like our cars and we must give away our possessions that will, to people who will find use with them. And when we begin to out ourselves at our disadvantage for the advantage of others, then we're beginning to touch on what Christ is speaking of here. You see, it's quite the opposite of what the shrewd manager was doing. He was working everything for himself. In the kingdom of God, we're shrewd with the resources of God for the benefit of everyone else. Now, one thing is sure. Our worldly wealth will go somewhere. We cannot hang on to it. One day, our most precious possessions will mean absolutely nothing. The only wealth that will endure is that which has been invested in others for the sake of Christ and his gospel. So the question we have to ask is, how do I use the wealth that the Lord has given to me? We're not just talking about material wealth. But what about my mental and intellectual wealth? What about the life of the church? What about the privilege of the talents that I have and the influence I have in my work or in my various circles with my friends and my associates? How do I use these things? All of them having been given to me by God alone for his purposes. How do I use all that I have for the kingdom of God? You see, the manager was doing what he did for what reason? He wanted to secure for himself the future of his earthly life. But we are Christians. We understand that life doesn't end when we draw our last breath. Indeed, we recognize that when we draw our last earthly breath, life has just begun. So in light of that fact, my destiny lasts infinitely longer than my present life. What is my response to what God has given me? What is it going to look like in light of my eternal destiny? Every detail of our lives should be marked and give expression to the fact that we've been chosen by God and have been given an eternal destiny with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus' point is to say that worldly people, the sons of the world, often spend more time and more zeal fixing their supposed future destiny on earth than do the children of light fix their minds and their efforts on their eternal destiny with Christ and the legacy they leave behind. Do you, Christian, do you live each and every day with a sure sense That the end of this life, no matter how many years before it comes, but in light of eternity, that this life here and now is very, very short and it's near the end. Those apart from Christ live life into the future. They're always looking for what's next. Christians live life from the future into the present. I think it'd be a good practice for all of us to sit down and to write out what we want our obituary to say about us. What do I want the world to know about me when I die in terms of my service and my life as one who is a son or daughter of God? 
And once my obituary is written, the call in my life is to live in light of it. To live in light of what God calls me to be as a man, as an ambassador of Christ, as a servant within his kingdom. Let's read on in verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You see, the manager of the land sought to serve two masters. He sought to serve the owner of the land and himself and his money. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is clear. If you have not been faithful with your worldly wealth, money and possessions, God will not trust you with true spiritual riches, the care of souls, successful mission and evangelism, the oversight of his church. Frankly, in many ways, this is a message to those who are entrusted with the leadership of God's church. And this is where many would-be Christian leaders fall short. For many, God is sovereign in everything except for their finances. In fact, for those who are in ministry and have big moral failures that remove them from the office of pastor, the most common reason is sexual sin. But the second is financial matters. They don't pay their taxes. They're stealing from the church's funds. You name it. And those are the ones who are dismissed. However, there are many more who are outright disqualified but have developed a damning theology that assumes that the heart of what God wants for everyone is that we be rich and live high on the horse, especially if the man is a preacher. It's a deadly heresy. It's spreading far and wide throughout the world. It's the most prominent theology that I see in Africa. It's such a ridiculous claim that the kingdom of the world has now picked up on it and finds entertainment value in it. There's a new reality television show. It's called The Preachers of L.A. They follow the lives of several prominent health, wealth, and prosperity preachers in Los Angeles and make constant note of their lavish lifestyles. And it's all on the backs of people who've been duped into thinking that they too will one day be rich if they give 70 or 80 or 90% of their income to these wicked, wicked men. What a joke. These men aren't Christians. These men are not preachers of the word of God. These men are not godly in any sense of the word. 
These are charlatans who seek to gain wealth and prosperity for their own personal gain that they might live in the kingdom of this world as sons of the world. And as a result, truly they are living their very, very best life right here and right now. And the modern prosperity movement is a sad example of the very thing that Jesus is addressing here. One must be trustworthy with all of his possessions if he or she is to be trusted with spiritual riches. If you have not been trustworthy with material possessions that God has given you to manage, after all, they all belong to him, how can he give you eternal spiritual possessions of your own? Brothers and sisters, we're merely stewards of our material wealth. God is the owner. We are like the manager in the parable. Martin Luther lived with this very perspective. He wrote this, We must use all these things upon earth in no other way than as a guest who travels through the land and comes to a hotel where he must lodge overnight. He takes food and lodging from the host, and he says not that the property of the host belongs to him. Just so should we also treat our temporal possessions as if they were not ours, and enjoy only so much of them as we need to nourish the body and then help our neighbors with the balance. Thus, the life of the Christian is only a lodging for the night, since we have here no continuing city but must journey on to heaven where the Father is. This is a tough word for Americans, isn't it? It's a tough word for me. What does my life, what does the way I spend the money that I am stewarding on all the things that I have, the way I treat the possessions that God has given to me, what do these things prove about the way in which I identify myself as a child of the King in the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, our use of our possessions are a spiritual matter. Our possessions and our spiritual relationship with the Lord are inseparably bound together. And the sooner we realize this and work to do something about it, the better it is for our souls. Many Christians don't think that they will be judged by Christ for what we do in this life. But the Bible is clear on this. Christ will judge his own according to how we have followed his commands. God has expectations for us. And one of those areas pertains to how we manage all that he's given us. The Bible speaks about storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven through our stewardship and work here on earth as Christians. Now, I don't pretend to know at all what that necessarily means. However, what I think is this. When we sit at the great marriage supper of the Lamb, no two saints of God will sit at the table with robes that look the same. We will all have garments of white, but all of them will be tailored differently by the measure in which we've dedicated ourselves to the resources of the kingdom of God. 
No two garments will be alike. We will not falsely judge or condemn one another because of it. However, we will be known by our commitment to and our striving for the kingdom of God on earth when we find ourselves together in heaven. And the challenge for us is that we recognize that now, daily striving for the kingdom. For those among us who are squandering their resources, we must remember that the judgment of God will come suddenly and unexpectedly. It is totally impossible in this world that we would ever serve God and money. This is a radical teaching. There is no middle ground. If we are devoted to our possessions, we will despise God with our intellect and we will hate him with our emotions. The totality of our being is wrapped up in this. Seculars feel no tension about this because God, self, and money are all tied together in one profound idolatry. And as Christians, we feel the tension because our duty toward God pulls us in one direction, but the pressures of daily life, paying our bills and making a comfortable living for our family, that pulls us in the other. It's not easy. And please don't mishear me. We do live in a physical, tangible, material world. We're not Gnostics. We don't believe that just because something isn't explicitly spiritual that it's evil or that we shouldn't have it. We all go through times in life when material focus is necessary. We need to have a home to live in. We need to have transportation. We need to make wise investments. All of these things are necessary in this world. They require our attention. In addition to that, the possession of wealth, even great wealth doesn't make one a materialist. However, it does dramatically increase the danger. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we must ask, what is my treasure? I'm sure that while as a group we subscribe to the truth that we cannot serve God in money, Nevertheless, many of us attempt to do both. And we are probably very good at it. Perhaps we're the best in the world. We're so good that we think we are serving only God. But let's really consider this. Let's be honest about it. And I'm telling you what, it does a number on my heart when I begin to do some soul searching of my own on this issue. So often... We fall short in this area. Think of it this way. What often consumes your conversations with your spouse? Is it your house, your shopping, your budget, your new car? What is it that you most want to talk about with your friends? Hey, have you seen my new whatever? Let me show you what I just got. We need to be on guard in this area. These things are necessary. They're not evil in and of themselves. But when they begin to consume us, we're no longer serving the Lord. What consumes our hearts? That's the question. 
Jesus goes on in verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus has exposed the hearts of the Pharisees. They are lovers of money. And really, Jesus draws a uh, a distinction between men that says that either they love God or they love money. Now, perhaps there's a man out there in the world who doesn't love God and also doesn't love money, but I have never met him. The love of money is a tremendous temptation for Christians. So it cannot be any surprise to us that it is foremost in the heart of sinful man. And friends, some of you are sitting here this morning and you live your lives for the next dollar so you can indulge in your next purchase or your next adventure. And sadly, you keep coming to the conclusion, whether you want to admit it or not, that nothing provides the deep satisfaction and lasting joy that all of these things of the world promise you. You're searching for fulfillment, and when you can't find it in your possession, when you can't find it in all of your trips around the world, you come to seek more and more and more money. Maybe it's in there somewhere. Maybe joy is found when all the bills are finally paid. Maybe satisfaction comes when I can buy whatever I want, whenever I want. Maybe peace is mine when I can give away a bunch of money to different causes for a philanthropic feel-good in my heart. Maybe peace is mine when I can do this or that. I just need another 10,000. I just need a million and I'll be set and I'll be full of joy and peace and satisfaction. But you know what? History has proven time and time and time again that this is never, ever, ever true. In fact, in our own American generation, we right now are the richest people to have ever lived in the history of the world, ever We're also the most depressed, anxious, and highly medicated people in all the history of the world. Why? Because we're seeking to find our joy in that which will never satisfy. We're seeking to find satisfaction and peace in that which God has given as a means to live in this world with our eyes set on eternity. Friends, if you're living for money... If your every waking moment is spent seeking to find ways to put new dollars in your pocket. And you think if you just find that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and everything's going to be happy and peaceful. You are far from God. And I assure you, you will never find joy or peace when you get there. The very thing you are seeking joy in is the very thing that we see here in verse 15 that is an abomination to God. Anything that you exalt in your heart over and above God is an abomination to Him. Friends, if you are a lover of money, I hope you will really consider what it is doing for you. Is money necessary? Absolutely. Is it evil in and of itself? No. 
But when we take something God has given to us as a gift to steward in a certain way, and we turn it into an idol for worship, it is an abomination before God. And so I'm pleading with you who live each day for the love of money. Turn from your idol. Look to Christ. Believe the gospel. Repent of your sin. Come to your senses. You're running from God and seeking joy in everything else. And none of it will do. Turn to Jesus because he alone will satisfy. And brothers and sisters, Jesus was so forthright in this parable. Once we understand exactly what he's saying. Make friends through your use of money. Use your money to gain friendship with God and people so that both heaven and redeemed humanity will welcome you home in eternity. Be faithful with money. Because if you do, God will entrust you with true spiritual riches. And remember, you cannot serve both God and money. We can only serve God. And we can use our possessions in that service to him. The Lord calls us to be shrewd. To use all of our minds, to use all of our intellect, to use all of our will in the management of our possessions to show that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. But what are we doing with them? That's the question. How shrewd and calculated are we with all of our wealth? It must be with giving. Dr. Carl Henry was a great academic theologian. He was interviewed in 1990, and someone asked him this. They said, one of the major weaknesses, perhaps, of the Western church is our affluence. What kind of crippling effect has this had on the Western church? And what can we do to remedy that? Dr. Henry said this. I don't think that God despises riches. In fact, he gives them to us. What he despises is the misuse of them, and he rewards stewardship. Even Christian missions owe a great debt to the consecrated and often sacrificial philanthropy of well-to-do Christian leaders. What we need to do is enlarge the vision and burden of those to whom God has given much so that they understand that they have an opportunity that is rare in the history of Christianity to substantially advance the way of Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you realize, as a people, we have the necessary wealth above and beyond what would ever be necessary to see to it that the gospel would go to every lost people group in the world. And yet, it still has not. We have the resources. The question is, are they being employed? Our giving must be matched by the sharing of all that we have for the well-being and refreshment of God's people and for the proclamation of the gospel to the nations. We have been given much, every single one of us. And to whom much is given, much is required. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your instruction. It's deeply convicting. It's challenging to our souls when we truly consider our lives 
and how we relate to our possessions. I pray, God, that you would make us to be faithful managers, faithful to our master, to our king, and that we would shrewdly and wisely use the resources that you have given to us for the advancement of the kingdom, that the gospel would be proclaimed to all the nations. And I pray, God, that you would help us to fight the constant temptation to find our joy, our rest, our satisfaction, our peace in the things that we have and the money that we possess. Father, may we reject the false notion that any of these things will bring us lasting, satisfying joy. Because we know true satisfaction and true joy is found only in Christ. Father, help us to not doubt that reality. Lest we think that Christ would ever leave us without need. You've promised us, Lord, to always provide for us whatever is necessary. Therefore, we can use all that we have as generously as we can, even to the point of it being uncomfortable, in a way that looks reckless in the eyes of the world. We can utilize all of our possessions for the sake of the kingdom. Make us those kinds of people, O God. a people who are recklessly generous with all that we have for your kingdom's sake. Help us to be shrewd, wise managers and stewards of what you have given to us. That you would be glorified, that your name would be brought to the uttermost ends of the earth, that Christ would be exalted that the gospel would save and that the work that you have sent your church to accomplish in the world would be complete. And may it all be for your great renown. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.